Happy 4th of July, folks. Happy 4th of July. I want to, today's program is going to be an amalgamation of several important outtakes that we've done on Politics Done Right. And we ended with the one and only Tom Hartman. But before we get started, I want to say, this is a special day. Not just that it's the independence of the now most powerful country in the world. It's the Independence Day of the country that we all have the opportunity, that we all have the requirement, that we all have the responsibility to have it live up to all that people preach that it is. While it has always been these things for a particular sect in America, it has not been for a large plurality of the country. So in celebrating this day, in being a very patriotic American, in loving this country, let's make sure to make this country live up to exactly who we say that we are. That shouldn't be difficult if we all do it together. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Right now, the way the media describe things, it makes people get introspective. They look at their bills from last year and look at it this year, and you know what? It is higher. Uh, their bills are higher. But you know what happened during the pandemic? They were able to save because our We the People Society decided that we were going to take care of our own, everybody. We decided as a society that when we have downturns, we'll take care of each other through our, our, our uh, public system, right? And we did. We had the stimulus. We had all these different, we had the vaccines that everybody got access to right away. We had uh, some, uh, some cash given to those kids who were taken out of poverty. We did a lot, okay? Because we didn't want what happened in 2008 to occur. It took a hell of a long time to get out of that downturn that was created by capitalism. By That's what that, that big downturn in 2008 created by the excesses of capitalism. In fact, those people thought that capitalism was going to die there because finally the house of cards fell. But in effect, what we had is a government who propped back up that sector to continue doing all the damage that it has done, and we get the cyclicality of what occurs. So that's that's that. Now we had this new, this pandemic, and what happens? We are saying we are not going to allow what occurred in 2008, a 10-year ramp up to, to, to uh, 3% employment again. We're not going to allow that. What we're going to do is we're going to do what Keynesian economics says. And Sister Jen, I see you keep talking stuff. Listen and learn, please. What we said we were going to do is we said we were going to influx the economy with the liquidity it needed 
so that it doesn't climb up on itself. In, in software, we call it a deadly embrace. A deadly embrace is where you can't get out of stuff and you spiral down. So we didn't allow that. So we pumped the economy up with, with stimulus. And you know what? It worked. And if you doubt that it worked, I want you to listen to this. I'm not going to say people are not in pain because there are a lot of people that are in pain because the GOP and two Democratic senators are holding us hostage. Joe Manchin, uh, Christine Cinema, and the entire Republican Party is holding the middle class hostage. And I want to let you listen to this here. And then we'll take it on the other side, because this is the reality. This is, these aren't questions. This is the reality. 90% of House Republicans voted against a bill that would address those supply chain issues while only offering criticism of the administration's handling of a major economic issue. But despite supply chain issues like the one plaguing baby formula and high inflation that is dominating the current discourse about the economy, the Federal Reserve's annual report on households released today shows that self-reported financial well-being is at its highest level since the survey began in 2013. In the fourth quarter of last year, 78% of adults reported either doing okay or living comfortably financially. This as unemployment hit a pre-pandemic low of 3.6% and wage growth continues. Joining us now is Betsy Stevenson, professor of economics at the University of Michigan. She was the chief economist for the U.S. Department of Labor under Barack Obama from 2010 to 2011. Uh, good to see you again. Thank you for being with us, Betsy. There, there's stuff going on out there in the ether that's real. Prices are up uh, It's and, and people see prices every day. It has an impact on how they feel about things, how they feel about politics, how they feel about the country, but it's it's with us because of a whole bunch of things. We've got supply chain cr- crushes still from the pandemic. We've got high oil prices, largely because of the war in Ukraine. How do you how how should people think about this? What happened was the government responded by making sure responded to the pandemic by making sure households could pay their bills, could put food on the table, uh, that people didn't really get left behind. And it worked. You know, if you look at the 2008 recession, it took us eight years to get unemployment below 4%. We were able to do that in less than two years this time. And what we've seen in this recent survey is that people took some of that extra money they were given and they said, you know, I don't need to spend all of it right now. And they saved it. And what that means is we have the highest share of households who tell us that they could cover an emergency expense of $400 than we've seen since the survey began in 2013. The highest share of households who say they could cover three months of expenses if something bad happened. Households need this kind of cushion, and we saw that giving them support gave them this kind of cushion. Let's turn to the... This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Bad part. It's really hard to get these numbers precisely right. Exactly how much money should we have given households where they spent what they needed, saved the rest, and didn't go chasing things where we just didn't have enough supply. And so what happened is people got a little bit of extra money and they wanted things like cars 
and we didn't have cars to give them because of supply chain problems. So that pushed up the the price of used cars 40% as people went chasing cars that didn't exist. Millennials started feeling more comfortable. Maybe it's time to buy a home. We didn't increase the number of houses available. We had low interest rates. People had a lot of money, pushed the prices of houses up. We also had people trying to relocate around the country because they were able to work from home for the first time. Again, uh, recent research showed that that being able to work from home is responsible for a large share of the increase in housing prices as people sort of moved and reshuffled around to take advantage of that. So we have a problem, which is supply constraints mean that sellers can't respond as quickly as they normally do to increase supply. And we've got all these households that have a lot of cash. The end result is inflation. That's not the biggest reason we have inflation, though. The biggest reason we have inflation is energy prices, and that's on Putin. The biggest cause of inflation is, in fact, energy uh, prices that falls through. And then here's what the killer of that that I want to mention. The energy prices are not high because of shortages. It is high because the companies have pricing power. It's high because we have a lot of excess global oil floating on super tankers around the world with oil companies pressuring their politicians not to allow that oil because they came from the wrong countries, right? So let's be clear here. Let's be clear here. This inflation is manufactured. Are there shortages? Yes. Are there shortages on enough thing to create a generalized high inflation? No. Oil should not be at the price that it is. That would have dropped in inflation. Food should not be at the price that it is. That would have dropped inflation. And also, we should start making the capitalist system pay for its fraudulent behavior. They're the ones who decided to underpay American workers or not pay American workers and move their production overseas and at the same time use just-in-time inventory, which means that with just-in-time inventory, if there is a slight delay, a pandemic, large delay in this case, or any one of these disruptions, you affect the entire supply chain. That isn't on government. That is on the private sector. That isn't on government. That is what they decided to do. The private sector, the corporatocracy, because of it, of all it seeks is profits without humanity. And I'm not, I'm not even overblowing this. That is what they do. Solution is either disrupt it and have true free enterprise or institute such strong regulation. That X amount of product has to be created in country. Create all kinds of regulations that forces us not to fall into the trap that private sector puts us in. Let me get to the Houston Chronicle article. Why are POC so upset? Why are black people so upset? Why are Latinos so upset? I'll tell you why. There's an article that came out yesterday. People wonder why is it, you know, I've had people all over the place. They've called me the N-word, you know, doing this kind of work. N-word, all kinds of things that I don't let it bother me. In fact, I try to befriend them. I try to see where their heads are, where they're coming from. I try to be the person that's going to look beyond Because I understand most of this stuff is generated by ignorance and so forth. 
So anyhow, I read this article, it's a Houston Chronicle article. The title was, same Texas religious leader or some Texas religious leaders live in lavish tax-free estates thanks to obscure laws. So we know who the, the rich churches are mostly. And again, I don't want to be racial here, but in this case, I must. Most of these big mega rich churches, yeah, there are a lot of black and Latino mega churches as well. But most of these mega churches, you know who the culprits are, and they take all these great tax advantages. And here in Texas, the Houston Chronicle decided that it was going to do a story, and not only a story, a series on the issue. So I was excited. I'm not one of those church-going people who lavish themselves or praises the church. I know the church has a lot of evil in it, right? So anyhow, I'm reading the article and the guy did a great job. He went to the tax assessor collectors. He figured out what homes were not paying taxes, which preachers lived in mansions and all these great things. And it's like, wow, that is great. He's doing the right thing. And he's not naming preachers per se, but he's naming organizations, etc., etc., etc. Right? And then it happened, right? When it is time to give a representative example of a church pastor taking taking advantage of the tax system in other words what is commonly known to what everybody wants people to believe is you know living on the dole who is the first by name preacher on the negative side. I digress. The article first decides to praise two preachers. I, I want to read this, this part of the article. Remember, the article is talking a lot about these guys that pay tax, don't pay their taxes. They live in these big mansions and gated communities. These are all preachers. And in Texas, they have a parsonage law that they live by that allows the pastors not to have to pay taxes on their residences, etc. So they build mega mansions with your mega dollars and your mega tax break. So here's how it goes now. This passage says it all. It doesn't look racist. It doesn't look like they're picking stuff. But when you look at it in the aggregate, the subliminal message that goes out is which preachers are on the dole. And it carries out the stereotype. And I want you guys to tell me if you don't see it. Look at this. Everybody know who Olstein is? Olstein is, Olstein is that mega preacher in Texas, has this prosperity gospel, makes a lot of money. He's the guy who didn't open the door when the hurricane hit until he was embarrassed into opening the door. By the way, I do like his messages when he starts talking a lot about uh, prosperity stuff. He has some good messages. But again, preacher, Osteen, he has a big problem. And the other one is Hagee from San Antonio. Hagee, we all know is a... I don't want to call him a racist, but you know, Hagee's a guy who hate homosexuals, who hate everybody else and has a lot of other problems. But that's who this article decided to highlight as the ones that are good in paying tax. I want to read the article. Now, I just needed to give some context there. It says the following. Well-off religious organizations that clearly have the means to afford their taxes don't have to seek the exemption. Lakewood Church did not ask the Harris County appraiser for a tax break on the 15,000 square foot residence of the state's most famous prosperity gospel preacher, Joel Olstein. His annual tax bill comes to $218,000 a year, according to the county. Olstein, who hasn't taken a salary since 2004, believes it's important for donors to know all their money goes to the church, said the brother-in-law, Don Olive. He could take the parsonage break, Olive said, 
but he pays his property taxes, just like he's supposed to do. Property records also show that San Antonio Cornerstone Church didn't seek an exemption for any clergy residences in Beer County. Appraisals records show its well-known spiritual leader, John Hagee, pays $42,000 annually in property taxes. A spokesman said the matter was personal and declined to comment, but he pays his taxes. So here, these two controversial white pastors, they pay their taxes on their property taxes, but let's continue. But Harris County Appraisal District documents show New Light Church World Outreach and Worship Centers pay no taxes on its 25,000 square foot mansion in spring perched on the shore of a private lake and occupied by its high-profile leader, I.V. Hilliard. The 11.8 lot includes three hot tubs, two fountains, and a swimming pool. Who else, uh, who else did they pick on? Let me see. Two controversial white preachers they lift up as being good tax-paying preachers. His name is, uh, como se llama? Ivan Ujueta, devoted to use mastering. He didn't pay his property taxes. So the two that they highlighted for paying their property taxes, two controversial white preachers, but when they are wanting to show preachers living extravagantly without paying their taxes, they chose Hilliard and Ulueta. I wonder, did they check on the Second Baptist Church, which has several mega churches in the area and whose pastor hates paying taxes, is a great supporter of the Republican Party, and is trying to eliminate taxes altogether? Did they consider checking on that? I doubt it. I doubt it. But that is what I'm talking about. It's always, whenever they're making these cases, in as much as POCs are not the protagonists of all the deceit, are not the protagonists of the ones spending the money or causing the most pain, somehow they're going to be the ones that are highlighted. The same thing occurred when we talk about uh, the, the coronavirus. They stopped traffic from all of Southern Africa, not just South Africa, but all these other countries that have the uh, Micoran uh, strain. Not a problem. You can still come to the United States. It's always easier to hit the POCs, right? Forget this picture here. Check it out on the screen, folks. That is the Ugandan activist who was out there with the Norwegian activists and, and, and four others. When the AP reported that there were these youths out there to defend the climate, the top picture is what everybody saw. Unbeknownst to them, cropped out was that Ugandan girl who works very hard in the climate movement, just like Trondenda. Think about that. So... One of the titles of the art of the, the piece today was Our Media Creates Racist. And I really mean that. A lot of people are infer much from what they hear on the media. And when the media does things like this, I mean, it, it seems subtle. It doesn't seem like it's something that is really there, but it is there. It is the subliminal messages that are sent. Climate change, fighters for fight climate change. We are going to make climate better. We have the youth fighting. And they don't know. A lot of African youths are in there too, including this Ugandan girl, Nakete. I think it's Nakete is her name. But we don't hear about them. And when they're in, in Switzerland or Davos or wherever they were, taking pictures together, when it was time for the eight, Vanessa Nakrate, thank you very much, Nakate. Thank you very much, Rodney. When it was time for the picture to go out for the world to see, they cropped her out. What did the reporter at the Houston Chronicle do? They cropped 
them out. They cropped two religious guys who have a problem and lift them up as being the supporters and defenders of paying their taxes. And when it was time to show two of who, two who didn't pay their taxes, they showed a Latino and they showed an African American. Now they don't come out and they don't have to say anything. What's in your mind is, is that message that has been promoted to you over and over and over again. POCs on the dole. Others upstanding, taking care of business. It's not quite evident. You don't see it. They don't have to come out and tell it to you. It's the same thing that they did when uh, the, the former leader of the Republican Party said, we don't use the N-words anymore. We just use phrases that codify who these people are. That's all we do now. Maywood says, unfortunately, that's only too true, Egberto. It may not be intentional, but the net effect is the same. Let me tell you right here and there for the, these reporters at the Chronicle, it was intentional. And let me tell you what I mean by intentional. They wanted their article to have faces to preachers that people could recognize as doing wrong. And in order to do that, they decided to show a Latino and a black in as much as all the wealthy Preachers in Harris County, the vast majority, don't look like Ulueta or Hilliard. It's just that simple. Let's go to the student loan. And then I have a soliloquy I want to do on the student loan. So let's, let's go with the student loan. Then comes my soliloquy that you're going to listen to. And we have breaking news from the White House. The president has just announced he's extending the pause on federal student loan repayments. NBC's Monica Alba is back with me from the White House. Monica, we didn't let you get away very far. A lot of news coming today. Uh, Talk to me about the student loans and just extending this. It was supposed to expire January 31st. This is a really significant development, Andrea. When the president first came into office, he directed the payments be put on pause through August. Then later in the summer, they determined they were going to extend that again as Delta was surging to the end of January, as you point out. And now the president is saying an additional 90 days will go into effect for this pause. So this punts it all the way to May 1st, 2022. And of course, this is something that the administration had been under pressure to make a decision about, given what we're seeing with the economy. And this affects more than 41 million Americans who really felt they wanted this breathing room to continue to figure out what the president and this administration may do overall when it comes to student loans. And it is something that the Department of Education is reviewing with borrowers to see if they're going to make some change Of course, there have been many advocates, many Democratic lawmakers even, who've asked the president to consider forgiving up to a certain amount of these loans, potentially $10,000, maybe more. Some have called, of course, for the entirety of it. So this just gives the president, the White House and the Department of Education more time to figure that out while people, again, take more time given, of course, all of the pressure and the unknowns of what the Omicron variant will mean for our uneven economic recovery, Andrea. So, as it turns out, we got another 90-day reprieve for all our young people with debt. Well, actually, with everybody who has student debts. Let me talk about student loan. This is important. I have a, an open discussion with a darn good friend of mine, professor, um, a professor here at the, the university, a very good friend of mine. 
And it's amazing that when I'm thinking, sometimes I can't even remember names, right? Um, Jay, Professor Jay, all right? Jay Tice. He told me that I needed to be careful the way I pushed student loan forgiveness. And he, and he made a great case. And the great case he made had to do with all those folks in Appalachia that never took advantage of student loans. They just went ahead and didn't go to college. And he spoke about all these people in these different parts of the countries who pretty much would not get the benefit of getting that break, that student loan break, and that the Republicans could use that as a hammer to say, look at these elitists on the coast giving themselves all these tax breaks for these kids who went to school. And, you know, after he told me that I had to think about it and think about it and think about it, and he's partially right, but you cannot go with partially right when something is absolutely right. We allowed all these governments, state governments, to give breaks to corporations. We allowed all these state governments to cut their support for public state schools. And then it meant those who wanted a higher education had to spend more for that education. You can say, well, yeah, they're the ones who are going to benefit from the higher salaries from that education. True. So I want them to share a responsibility of that education. But you know who benefits the most from an educated populace? The plutocracy. The owners of Exxon. The owners of all these other things. Okay? They are the ones who benefit from educated an educated population. So they owe them, they owe it to America to pay for those schools. Because remember, when when they offloaded all of that into loans, they get you twice. Corporations lend you the money. After corporations lend you the money, they profit from the interest rates that you pay to pay back that money. And then the corporations make money. <clears throat> On your excess labor, meaning you go ahead and you work for Corporation X, you design a parachute or you design an airfoil, you design a wing, and they make X amount of dollars on your design. They pay you a bit and they profit the rest. So everybody is making a profit on you. I'm not saying you shouldn't partake in your education, but it should be, it should be shared. And that's what student loan forgiveness is all about. Student loan forgiveness is saying for those people, and, and by the way, if somebody in Appalachia wants to step out and go to college like many do, do it. If somebody in the, in the ghetto, the barrios, and everywhere else want to do it, do it. But it is important for us to understand how our economic system works so that when, when we come and talk about we want to have loan forgiveness. It doesn't look like... When I, wrote, when I wrote the first part of this story, and I put it on YouTube, as a video on YouTube, somebody said, Egberto, you freeloader, pay your damn bills yourself. I don't want to pay your bills. To which I replied to him is, I am not in this fight for me. My student loan was paid off 10 years after I got out of college. Every penny of it was paid off by me. Okay. 
So I'm not a freeloader. Most of this stuff that I'm doing, it's not, oh, I'm doing it for Egberto. It's not the case. But I'm saying, it's not fair. First of all, it costs me a lot less to go to school than it costs my daughter, than it costs everybody else that's going to school now because our system wasn't as rip, ripping people off as it is now. As it is now. Eric says, politics done right. Egberto Willis is called a job you, a person used to pay your debt back. If you borrowed it, paying off your debt teaches you something about life. No, it doesn't teach you anything. If it taught you anything... Uh, why would the why would why would the corporations take such good care of creating bankruptcy laws? Bankruptcy laws prevent corporations from paying debt, and I, as a small company, had to had to give up over five thousand dollars from a company who went bankrupt and didn't pay me. I want you guys to understand that. And corporations, they don't have a problem. There are corporations. They go bankrupt, they don't pay their bills, and they come back into existence without a problem. Politics done right depends on you to keep doing what we do. What do we do? We make sure to keep, number one, the internet seeded with blogs and information to counter the right and to present what progressives represent for the benefit of us all to everybody so that it's not misread, misled by any other entity. We make sure and populate that internet with blogs, with videos, with all these other things to make sure that we are informed and to counter everything that you normally hear that, that are lying at the right. We also make sure to create articles in, in magazines, articles in newspapers all around the country to ensure, again, that our message gets out there. Last but not least, we also write books. As you see it, Class Warfare, the only re resort to right-wing doom, How to Make America Utopia, are two of the many books that I've written on these issues. So please support us in one of many ways. Numero uno, you can support us at PayPal, either one time or monthly. Go to politicsdoneright.com slash PayPal. You can support us on Patreon. That is politicsdoneright.com slash Patreon. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can support us by becoming a part of our YouTube channel, going to politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube, or you can support us in many other forms that you can find at politicsdoneright.com slash support. Be sure to visit our store, politicsdoneright.com slash store, and get our books at politicsdoneright.com slash books. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being with us. Once again with us, Tom Hartman, a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, a New York Times bestselling author of 33 books and America's number one progressive talk show host. His show is syndicated and on local for-profit and non-profit stations and broadcast nationwide and worldwide. It also is simulcast on television into nearly 60, 60 million U.S. and Canadian homes. Senor Tom Hartman, how are you doing today, my friend? My buddy, Egberto. It's great to be back with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, look, man, I tell you, you have another one out. And you know what I told you? Every time you release one of those guys, I want to be on that list. But this, this one, I was kind of, I, let me tell you, I had to just scan the thing. But I am intrigued by several of your chapters. New book is The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. What got you into writing that, Tom? 
Well, I've been fascinated with the, you know, with the topic and we're certainly seeing, you know, <laughs> creeping big brotherism here, uh, you know, not just creeping. I mean, you know, the Patriot Act kind of blew it through a wall and uh, and as did the Telecommunications Act of 96, the Section 230. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's altered the world. I mean, you know, there's, there's the the corporate big brothers and, and and in some ways the government big brothers, too. So I wanted to, to do a deep dive into both, which we did. Well, I mean, I, and you sure did. I, you know, I was going through the table of content and I'm like, wait, I would have never thought about covering this in Big Brother or covering that in Big Brother. I mean, it was quite an enlightening uh enlightening thing. So let, let me hear, uh, is this the last in the series or is the series continuing the, 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 the hidden history of series? The next one I was doing the line edit on um, just before I called into your show. And it's going to be titled The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Guided wow. America and How to Restore Our Greatness. As much as I kind of cringe at greatness, I don't get to pick the titles the publishers do. Um, but uh, it's that's what it's about. And it'll be out in September. And then that's probably going to be the last one in the series. But we'll see. Well, you know, that, that one is going to be exciting. Anytime I hear the word neoliberal, you know how we feel about that and you oh, know yeah. the, the kind of things that we have to do about that. Anyway, uh, so so tell me, um, how what got you into uh, this? I mean, you're the beginning. You start Big Brother and the Puritans. Why did we start there? Well, I mean, there have been two times in American history. I mean, people think of Big Brother, they think of 1984 George right, Orwell's exactly. novel, you know, in which you know government is Big Brother and Big Brother's watching you, and you know all that kind of stuff. And there have been two periods in American history where we actually had big brother governments. I mean, you know, like George Orwell style big brother governments. Um, the first, well, not the first, but one of them, the first one I treat in the book is the, the, the plight of people who were not uh, uh, Puritans in uh, Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire back from the 1600s right right up till the constitutional era. In fact, for this reason, Massachusetts almost didn't join the, the Republic. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, they had laws requiring that you had to go to church. You had to pay taxes to the local church. You had to treat the, the church elder as if he was, uh, you know, the, the senior official in the community uh, with great deference and all that sort of thing. And there were these, these three Quaker women who just weren't having it and they refused to go to church and they weren't paying their taxes. And so uh, the head, this was in Dover, New Hampshire, and John Greenleaf Whittier uh, made it famous with a, a poem titled uh, when, the, when the Women Came from Dover, uh, which I quote in the book. And um, uh, the this pastor, his name was um, Hate Evil Nutter. That was his name, honestly. His first name was Hate Evil, all one word, and his second name was Nutter, and uh, which I suppose is enough to make you crazy. But anyway, yeah, the Nutter uh, part, yeah. He, he felt that he was being disrespected by these women because they weren't showing up in his church. So he ordered the town constable to tie them to the back of a horse cart in the middle of winter. It was there was three feet of snow on the ground, strip them naked to the waist, whip them until they were bloody and then drag them in the back of this cart to the next town where the process would be repeated. And this went on through three or four towns. I forget uh, how many uh, it's in the book. And finally, a constable stopped. And, and uh, you know, it was a fairly well-known story that, like I said, Whittier turned into a, one of our 
you know, one of the more famous poems in American literary history. So that was the first. Um, the second, uh, of course, was slavery. If a, a person was black in this country from 1619, um, you know, arguably up to quite recently, um, Big Brother was watching. Big Brother was controlling. And uh, certainly during the slavery era, up until the end of the Civil War, um, the South was a complete police state. You cannot. And you and I have talked about this before yeah. when my, an oligarchy came out. You cannot enforce slavery without a police state. They are. It's absolute an absolute necessity. But by 1840, as a result of the invention of the cotton gin and its high price, so only big plantations could buy one. And it made a plantation 50 times more productive mm-hmm. in terms of cleaning cotton. Um, because of that, by the 1840s, the South had become a, a, an oligarchy, a, a, just a fascist state. Um, elections were meaningless. Ballot boxes were stuffed. The people who could run for election were only members of the roughly thousand oligarchic families in the South who owned basically the South. Um, everybody represent, you know, elected to any kind of political office of any consequence was from one of these families. If you, uh, if you were white and you defied these families, you could get hanged, you could get uh, whipped, you could get imprisoned, uh, you could get driven out of the states. Uh, and so, Really, the Civil War was not a war between the North and South. It was the war between a fascist mm-hmm. oligarchy in the South that had that no longer had any loyalty to democracy whatsoever against a Republican democracy in the North, at least to the extent that it was with men voting and not women um, and and by and large, not black people voting also. But still, it was that those those were the two systems. And so that was our second Big Brother era. And then, you know, the before first- you go to the next one, because there, there's something that that kind of puzzled me when I was going through scanning through the book. Right. And the chapter that came out to me was Big Brother invents whiteness to keep power. And it is something that before reading your book, I would talk about on my on my station, particularly telling people, hey, we this was designed to for for some to keep power, not it wasn't designed for white people. It was designed for some to hold power. And when I saw that you brought that into the fold, it was like, oh, wow. Yeah, Tom, why don't you elaborate on that for me? Well, thank you. I can't uh, claim original uh, originality to that. I learned it from the 1619 Project and several ah. other books that were written around that time. But basically what was happening is, you know, starting in 1619, slavery uh, was a thing here in North America. And uh, by the middle, uh, by the by the middle of the early 1600s, the 1630s, if I'm remembering correctly, and I would refer you to Hannah, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's book. Yeah, Nicole Hannah Jones. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, around that time, uh, poor whites First of all, many of the Africans who were brought over were just one generation of slavery or, or you know, it was impressment or it was, um, uh, I forget the word for where you have to pay back your right. fare. Indentured and, servitude. Indentured servitude. Thank you. Bless you. And um, that was the case with many of the white people who came to this country as well. And so they were finding common purpose with each other. And there were a number of rebellions that were black and white rebellions against mm-hmm. rich people. And so the the good fathers of Virginia, specifically in the 1630s, as I recall, in fact, I think 1636 was the big year for it. But I'd have to it's been a year since I wrote the book. I'd have to go back mm-hmm. and look at it. 
Um, but, uh, you know, basically they said, OK, we're going to enforce this caste system, but we're we're going to do it the lazy way. We're going to make it so that, you know, anybody you can just instantly look at them and know which caste they are in right. America. And uh, thus they literally invented whiteness. I mean, slavery had existed forever in history. The Romans had slaves. The Greeks had slaves. Mm-hmm. But their slaves looked just like them. Right. I mean, occasionally they take slaves from nearby people that they had conquered. So maybe the slaves spoke a different language or looked slightly different from them. But by and by and large, you know, slavery was not a racial thing. Um, but uh, we invented that. Uh, we uh, America invented that. The Virginia invented whiteness, and it still it still haunts us. And and now it's spread around the world like the the poison that it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, when we move on now from the the social aspect and we hit the corporate aspect of Big Brother, I think if you follow your your lead. That is probably one of the most corrosive and dangerous portions of this. I think so, because in particular, or you know, what what amplifies it is the Supreme Court saying that corporations are persons and that persons can buy politicians and that it's all just free speech, a political bribery. I want to stop no you right there because I, I want to tell you, I met you during the move to amend days and the coffee party days. I remember you were one of the huge advocates that came out there and spoke to us about people personhood and all of that. So I want to give you a, 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 a late thanks on that because that was an important thing then. Well, thank you, Egberto. Yeah, I wrote a book about it called Unequal Protection in yes. 2002. Uh, the subtitle was How Corporations Became Persons. And um, so, you know, it's it's particularly problematic when corporations not only have the ability to own politicians, write their own legislation, but excuse me, but can also um, basically know everything about you. Um, we really don't know if any corporations have done what J. Edgar Hoover did. I mean, I mentioned in the book um, that Hoover, in fact, very early in the book, that Hoover was, you know, a gay man at the political pinnacle of power. And in a, at a time in the United States in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, when just simply being gay was enough to get you imprisoned or, or murdered. And, um, but he, and, and, but he used political spying, big brother, government spying to compile dossiers on virtually every politician and, and business leader who might ever challenge him. And, uh, you know, right up until 1960, in fact, because he was being blackmailed by Santo Traficati down in Miami, he had, he and Clyde Tolson used to go down to Hialeah and gamble and, and, uh, Traficati would give them, uh, money and young boys and access to the, to the racetrack and things, um, and give them rooms in the hotel. Um, uh, Traficati was blackmailing him. And, and so he was denying that there was even such a thing as organized crime right up until 1960. That year, there were only, I think, 17 prosecutions for organized crime in the United States. Then Bobby and John Kennedy came in and Bobby in 61, the first year, had over 700 prosecutions of organized crime, which is when Traficati and Marcello found their backs to the wall and decided that they were going to do something about the Kennedys. But that's kind of a whole nother book <laughs> that I wrote a, a number of other years. I ago. am that, I'm going to be interested in, in, in that offshoot, the Kennedys and the mob. But yeah, yeah go that, ahead. that book is called Legacy of Secrecy that I, I co-wrote yeah. with uh, Lamar Waldron. Um, and it's about, you know, the both Kennedy assassinations and the Martin Luther King assassination. But um, I forgot where we were. <laughs> uh, no, 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 we're talking about the corporations and. and t- oh, yeah. T- yeah. 
And and so, you know, I don't know if any corporations have compiled dossiers on particular members of Congress and said, uh, <clears throat> if you uh, <laughs> don't say something, uh, this might get out. Um, but, you know, we, we live in a time when it's a very real possibility. Um, I, I actually don't even present that as a possibility in the book. I'm, I'm just speculating with you right now. But, I, you but know, the- I don't, Tom, I don't see how it's not, you know, again, we are, we are just talking about speculation. And you wouldn't be able to put that in a book. I understand that. But it's not hard to believe how these guys come up with certain laws that they know the average American citizen simply don't want, unless that's the case. Yeah. I've, I've assumed up until this, up until recently that, you know, when uh, legislators are passing laws that they know most people don't want and that they know are going to be harmful to America and Americans, that they're doing it because they've been bought. Because yeah. they've been off. But it's not inconceivable that they're being blackmailed as well. I just I just think that that's less likely. I That's the kind of thing that. Well, I was going to say that's the kind of thing that would probably get out. But, you know, Hoover's blackmail of everybody didn't get out until after he died. Exactly. So exactly. Exactly. So you never you never know about that. So when it comes to you also link capitalism in there. Um, I personally think that capitalism needs all these types of coercions and absent these coercions, you can't have a system as we have it at the same as where, where it really is abusive to people. And at the same time, people tolerate it and therefore coercion is necessary. Your thoughts on that relative to uh, what you've written. By coercion, what do you mean? Well, you cannot have people believe, you cannot have people work themselves off for the profit of others and not complain about it. You cannot have people who simply say, um, come out to the defense of, let's say, the, the, student, the real capitalists as they do, if they're not coerced into the thought process that have them doing that. And I think in a lot of ways, knowing our internals probably presents that case. Yeah, well, you make a you make a good a good argument for it. I I mean, again, I I think that it's it's not so much that you know if if a group of people want to unionize that uh, Amazon is spying on their uh, on their That's purchase another point. industry and they're gonna and they're gonna use it against them. I think it's more that Amazon will simply hire you know union busters to come in and scare the hell out of them. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that the big club here right now is money, not not uh, you know I- implied or even direct coercion. Oh, so you don't? You, so you think it's mostly? But let me ask you this then, Tom. I don't know, let's, let's push. Let's push that a little further. Sure. It's it's money. Okay. How does the money get one to do what they need to do? Well, money is a form of coercion. I mean, okay. you know, if you don't have enough to eat, you know, money is food. If you don't have a place to stay, money is shelter. If you don't have, uh, you know, the the clothing you need to protect yourself right. from elements when winter comes, you know, money is survival. And uh, in addition to all the things that we generally think of it as, you know, as status and as leisure and as, you know, whatever. And uh, so uh, I think that you can build a strong case. And frankly, this is the case that was built back in the 1930s to to come up with the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act in 1935 to legalize unions. You could build a strong case that um, the uh, the power that an employer has over a non-unionized employee um, is extraordinary, particularly during a time of widespread poverty, um, which was very much the 1930s and is increasingly America today, um, sadly. 
So, yeah, I, I, I think we could we could frame it entirely in a coercion frame. You know, it, it is amazing that um, because uh, I did a piece two days ago with Larry Summers and Larry Summers appeared on TV. And I'm going to tie this into your book. But Larry Summers came came on and he, 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 he explained to the well, he thought he was explaining to what I call a naive audience that after you've gotten four uh, percent or so in wage increases that it automatically generates inflation that actually takes back more than the, than your increased income was. And then he starts, crap. I know. And then he starts to bring up and he says, and by the way, you know, you know, Ukraine creates a lot of wheat. So therefore there's going to be a lot of transportation. You know, we are, we can overproduce more oil if we wanted to, which means from us ports, we'll have ships going from us ports with this oil to deliver whatever. So he, he intermingled in there and, we're going to have to start thinking about having ships not follow the Jones Act and go and, and simply have that go to the cheapest shipper. So he attacked inflation wage, inflation as justified wages as being a, as being the causation of inflation, the reduction mm-hmm. of, you know, he, he in one package. Right. And I'm like talking about subliminal messaging to tell the workers don't ask for too much. You know, it was right. just amazing. And I, when I tie that into, what we're talking about, Big Brother, it is like Big Brother telling you all these things that will occur in yeah. in this scenario. Yeah, Larry Summers is a neoliberal's neoliberal. It's going good uh, for your next book. Yeah, <laughs> that's a little too late to write him into it. But if he's not in it, I'll have to go. <laughs> he probably, I, I bet he's in it because he was there with Obama and when he oh, yeah. came up, you know, so I bet he's in there. But second thing, globalism and Big Brother. Tell me yeah. about it with respect to the book. Well, uh, the info wars, right? Uh, you know, I, you know, it's a tough one. I mean, globalism is like you know one category, and Big Brother is kind of another. What's happening with regard to a global response to Big Brother? I can I can directly address which right, is right. That's what I mean. I, actually, I'm going from your part three. Okay. Okay. So, um, the, the European Union has come up with a, a set of basic rules, basic, you know, rights for people who are, uh, users of the internet. And you, you're seeing the, the consequence of this when you visit websites and they say, well, you accept cookies. Um, the, the, uh, the requirement is that you have to be, uh, you have to disclose things, mm-hmm. the number of people are being tracked and things like that. And there are limits on the ways and technologies that can be used to track people. There's also a really cool thing called the right to be forgotten that the European Union has now recognized, which came out of a lawsuit from a Spaniard who, um, was very upset that his name, uh, he had, been involved in a bankruptcy back in the late 90s. And whenever anybody Googled his name, because he was a low profile guy, that was the only thing that showed up. And he wanted it to take it off the search engines. And so uh, they're, they're pretty vigorous about it. Plus, here in the United States, um, we're the only developed country in the world that allows the internet, your internet service provider, the company is bringing the internet into your home to observe absolutely everything they're doing online. They can watch every keystroke, every read every email, look at every website you visit, even know how, you know, how quickly or slowly you scroll down the page, stopping mm-hmm. at particular pictures or headlines or ads. They know all this stuff and they can record it and they can sell it. 
And uh, so there's that. And then the uh, which, that, you know, that's the result of Donald Trump having hired Verizon lawyer Ajit Pai as the as the head of the FCC and blowing up what we referred to as net mm-hmm. neutrality. I always thought it should have been referred to as net privacy because it was really about Title II of the Telecommunications Act, yep. which has been used since the 1930s to say that if you want to wiretap somebody, if you want to listen on the phone conversation, you have to have a warrant signed by a judge. And up until Donald Trump and Ajit Pai got a hold of the FCC, that was the law with regard to the Internet in the United States, too. And it still is everywhere else in the world. So, you know, we've got a serious privacy problem. The other big problem um, that has gone worldwide, but really started here in the United States, is that, uh, well, let me let me give you a, a setup for this. Um, starting around the year 1000, <laughs> around the time Whoa, of the Magna Carta, 1100. then. Yeah, uh, no, no computers then. Um, there was this notion. It was it's sometimes referred to as the castle doctrine that a you know a man's castle yeah. home is his castle. But the the flip side of that is that you know if it's your castle, you're responsible for what happens in it. Mm-hmm. So if you Egberto were to go out and put a, a sign out in front of your house, uh, you know Saturday afternoon that says "Big Party Saturday Night, 10 p.m." You know everybody welcome, and you leave the door open, and, and just every reprobate in in the community comes in. <laughs> so you know just anybody who's looking for you know some some place they can get away with some kind of skeezy activity that nobody else would allow. So you're sitting there in your house and it's midnight and this has been going on for a while. And there's somebody in the back room getting raped and there's somebody over here showing child porn against the TV wall and a couple of people in the corner shooting up heroin and the police walk in who goes to jail. Well, all those criminals and you, because it's in your house, you're responsible for it. And if you allow criminal activity in your home and you don't stop it or report it, you go to jail too. So, uh, like I said, that has literally been in British common law for a thousand years. Yeah. And it was an American law all that time. Well, in 1996, in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, Section 230, uh, the geniuses who wrote this thought, hey, let's carve an exception into this. We'll leave it intact that, you know, if, if Tom has a party in his house and terrible things happen, he can be held accountable. But if he builds a house on the internet, even if he's selling, even if he's inviting in, as long as he's not doing it, as long as he invites in other people who are selling child porn or who are selling drugs or who are selling or who are terrorists and organizing bombings and attacks on January 6th and stuff like that, as long as it's his house, but he's not doing it, he has no responsibility at all. Mm-hmm. And thus, you know, within a couple of years, Mark Zuckerberg became one of the richest guys in the world. That 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 is a shame. Um Without giving, <laughs> we need to do something about it. And by the way, you know who wrote a pretty good book about this is Josh Hawley. I mean, you know, you've got Republicans as well as Democrats who are pretty flipped out about Section 230. Well, you know, weren't they trying to change that? It was in Congress having hearings trying to change that law. Yeah. They still are. And, yeah. uh, you know, at the time that Hawley wrote his book, it was when Trump was still president and and the whole sales pitch was, you know, Facebook just took down Donald Trump. We need to regulate these big companies. But, you know, in his book, he raises a whole I mean, the second half of the book is just, you know, it's it's about how liberals are going to destroy America. But the first half of the book is a pretty good documentation mm-hmm. of uh, how Section 230 has just wreaked havoc on our country. Well, I mean, it sure has both with the election, you name it, you got it um, without giving the, the end of your in the end of your book. Um, how do we rein this in just kind of topically, not anything in detail? 
Well, I think that, you know, number one, we need to deal with Section 230 and get that under control. Number two, we need to break up some of these giant monopolies. Um, no, no one company should control 80 or 90 percent of an industry like Google does with search, for example, or Facebook does with social media. Um, number three, we need to adopt the, the European privacy laws, um, the GDRP. I think it's the yeah, GDP. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is, <laughs> we need to we need to adopt that or something like it. And California is kind of leading on that, but they can't do things that that the federal government could do. And 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 finally, we need to end uh, the so-called net neutrality and or we need to restore net neutrality and uh, Ajit Pai and Donald Trump's sabotage of the Telecommunications Act and the uh, title two of the Telecommunications Act of 1930, whatever it was. It's funny as a starting point. Plus, we need to wait as, as to as to how they're being spied on. <laughs> and you know, I, I you know, I, I'm I'm still you know, even though Europe has better laws, I still sit down here and wonder sometimes. But do they really work? Because it's a pipe. I don't know. I I, I think you need great laws on the front end and the back end. Um, I agree. You know, I actually wrote an article on on the uh, net neutrality for common dreams about I don't know years ago. And it just popped up recently. And I'm like, oh, I forgot about that year, you know, several years ago during our move to amend days. Oh, yeah. You were, you were at the front of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, we were we were with this stuff a long, long time. Um, Tom, first of all, folks, you guys have to go out there and get that book. And, you know, I don't I you know, I get a lot of people on here and I don't just tell them to go get the book. But this is one. Well, every book that Tom writes, you got to get out there and get. So don't forget to go ahead. No, Tom, you know, you know, it's uh, you put your you put you put the stuff in there. The hidden history of Big Brother in America, how the death of privacy and the rise of surveillance threatened us and our democracy. Folks, get don't only I'm going to tell you, don't only get that book, get the whole damn series because if progressives are going to do the work that's necessary to recover all that went wrong in this country we need these different we, we need pathways and you know i used your I, I love your book the one that you did on healthcare. Mm-hmm. i use i i mentioned that book and I, I promote that book all of the times uh because i think it, it is a very very important read this one is a very important read though i have only scanned it i have to be honest about it but uh, again, a very important read. Tom Hartman, thank you so well. You know what? Thank you so kindly for the book. Thank you for kindly for appearing once again on Politics Done Right. And I cannot wait for the next one. And thank you so much for having me, Egberto. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much. I want to wish you a happy 4th of July. Don't forget what I said up front. Let's make this country, make it live up to who we say we are. So happy, happy 4th of July. Go enjoy those barbecues. Go watch those fireworks in a patriotic fashion, knowing that this is our country and that we will make this country the country we say that it is. Folks, please don't forget. In order to do what we do, we do need your support. So please go to politicsdoneright.com slash PayPal to offer whatever support you can or to find all the different methods in which you can support us, politicsdoneright.com slash support. Now, look, we are heading to Pittsburgh for Netroots Nation 2022. Netroots Nation 2022, and we need your support. We have a, an, a, a GoFundMe that's set up to fund that particular 
that particular endeavor where we are going to be meeting politicians and bloggers and, and activists from all over the country, progressives that, that that is. And we are going to make sure to have those interviews and bring that back to you. And not only that, with the new marching orders with how we are going to win 2022. So how can you provide us with support? How can you help us to make sure that we are funded for this trip? Please go to politicsdoneright.com slash netroots. Politicsdoneright.com slash netroots. Help us get the message out. Help us bring all of those into the fold. We cannot do this without you. And you have consistently showed that you understand that while the others have Coke, the Coke brothers, that is, we have you. We don't need millions of dollars like they do because they're pushing lies. We just need you to help us get the truth out. So please go to politicsdoneright.com slash netroots to support us. This is Politics Done Right, and you know how I'm going to end this, baby. I am what? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.